Hello, thank you for tuning in to our Empire Lecture Series podcast. We hope this podcast finds you well, whether you're driving to work, between cases, or adding some education to your workout. Remember that all of these lectures are also available on our website and YouTube channel. And if you like what you hear, please rate us five stars and subscribe. Happy listening. Everybody and welcome to the Empire Series, which is our didactic lectures for the um, New York section for, uh, for residents geared at covering many core curriculum topics during the COVID crisis. Um, we're delighted to be able to offer this to you and to introduce our first speaker, uh, Dr. Stephen Brandis, who is the Chief of Reconstructive Urology at Columbia and also um, President of the Society of GU Reconstructive Surgeons. Uh, Dr. Brandis is gonna be discussing urinary rectal fistulas this morning, and he's gonna be kicking off our series. We hope that you'll be able to tune in tomorrow and every weekday, our lectures will be starting at seven and there'll be two back-to-back -back, about 60-minute lectures. Uh, tomorrow's lectures are gonna be by Dr. Phillips from Westchester Medical Center, um, as well as um, Dr. Michael Whalen from George Washington University. Um, so I wanna welcome Dr. Brandis and invite him to begin his talk. All right, thank you, Gina. Can everyone hear me uh, fine? Hello? Yes, yes, we can, can hear you. Well. Okay, very good. Okay, thank you, Alex. <laughs> all right, well, thank you for the opportunity to, to speak to you all. As uh, Gina was saying, uh, as you can see, we have, you can see my slides or no? Guys? Yes. Is, is, yeah, it, is it forwarding or no? Yes? Yes, it's working. Okay, so, um, as you know, the, we, uh, Gina and Alex Moore have developed this Empire Urology uh, lecture uh, series. And uh, as you can see, uh, the whole list of uh, speakers, uh, most of them are either at eight or nine o'clock in the morning East Coast uh, time. Uh, in, my, in terms of my disclosures, I'm an investigator for Eurotronic, which is a paclitaxel urethral uh, balloon uh, coated dilator for urethral strictures. We're not going to be talking about that, but that's something that's potentially uh, uh, disclosure. So, so just the overall incidence and etiology of, of uh, fistulas, you know, the mean time to developing a fistula uh, between the rectum and the prostate uh, is about two, ye uh, two years if, if it's related to radiation. Uh, and uh, the, it's very variable. It's, it's obviously operator dependent on terms of brachytherapy, 0.4 to 0.8%, combo therapy, uh, external uh, therapy, and radiotherapy has the, most, the, the highest incidence of rectourethral fissures, also has the highest incidence of urethral strictures at the membranous urethra. And there is uh, patients who come in with a rectal ulcer secondary to radiation. And then the local doctor, uh, gastroenterologist is concerned that there may be a fistula, I mean, a, a recurrence of cancer. So he biopsies it. And that's unfortunate because there's typically a delay of about four months between the GI doctor biopsying the fistula and uh, biopsying the ulcer and the fistula forming. Uh, in terms of radical prostatectomy, you know, this day and age uh, with robotic prostatectomies, these, uh, the incidence is lower. 
than 1%. The, the, historically, with uh, open prostatectomy up to 4%. And then we'll talk about some uh, salvage uh, cryo, salvage HIFU, uh, and abdominal uh, perineal resection from uh, rectal cancer as etiology of fistula. So this is just my own series that I published about 10, 12 years ago, 42 patients. So I think I probably have now an, uh, about 80 something patients that we've operated on for fistulas. But the important thing is that majority overall are radical prostatectomy. The others are some kind of energy source like brachytherapy or cryotherapy or a combination of, of salvage HIFU, salvage radiation, and then uh, uh, lower in terms of other etiologies, but uh, majority radiation and post-prostatectomy. You know, you all know this in terms of signs and symptoms, you know, watery stools, urinary incontinence, uh, pneumaturia, dysuria, recurrent U UTIs, but the, the most severe and debilitating is the severe rectal ulcer. These patients are desperate because of their pain. This is usually due to a large radiation uh, rectal ulcer. And we'll talk about it later, but the rectal ulcer typically, the pain from the rectal ulcer gets a lot better once you do a colostomy or urostomy. So that's the one way to, to resolve that. But the, the clear quality of life things are two things. One, the rectal ulcer, and then the recurrent UTIs. I've had many patients who've ended up euroseptic and, and trouble uh, uh, ending up in the intensive care unit because of uh, bad bugs in the urinary tract infection. So uh, you see this uh, patient, what do you do? What's the first thing you do? You do an examination under anesthesia. You take them to the operating room. You see, just like if you have a bad malignancy, you, uh, uh, you wanna do a bimanual exam and see if the uh, pelvic or rectal exam, is it fixed or mobile? If it's fixed, you know, usually a lot of radiation damage. And do they have hair loss? What's the quality of the local skin tissue? The other thing you want to do is cystoscopy, look at the quality of the urethral tissue, see where the, uh, uh, the fistula is. Is it in proximity to ureter orifices? And that's going to make a difference in terms of if it's close to the UOs, do you have to place ureteral stents pre-op? Do you have to re-implant the ureters? And then looking at the rectum is important in order to see what the location and size of the, the uh, hole is or the ulcer on the rectum. Oddly enough, it, it looks very much like a cone, a cone shape. So usually the rectal hole is bigger than the prostatic hole. Um, and um, <clears throat> so it's, it's, it's cone, uh, cone shape. And you can see if there's a lot of radiation damage around, you know, as there's white blanched mucosa. That's not a good sign and it doesn't predict well. And also those patients are the ones that you need some kind of fecal diversion. So, you know, obviously you, you wanna know where your fistula uh, uh, injury is, you know, is it prostatic? Is it the, the bladder? Is it the membranous? But you also want to make sure that they're in the NED, that they don't have cancer. Obviously, if they had, you want to look at their original pathology, if they had positive surgical margins, T3 disease, high-grade disease, and their PSA doesn't nadir, that's a problem. Uh, you want to treat their malignancy first, 
before rushing in to fix their, uh, their fistula, otherwise it won't heal. This is just some uh, illustrations of, uh, of, of what a mature fistula looks like. This is not what it looks like initially. This is months uh, later showing the cystoscopic uh, uh, appearance. Here's a little rough uh, area and this is what it looks like, but this is not a rectal ulcer. This is just a nice healed, uh, smooth uh, fistula. You know, on CT, you, sometimes you can see air, you know, air here in the prostatic uh, uh, fossa and the prostatic urethra, air in the bladder, uh, gastrographin uh, uh, enema uh, 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 showing, you know, bladder and rectum uh, being filled. And here's another example here, a membranous urethral fistula on a, uh, on a retrograde, but either way you can uh, delineate these. Here's just a nice illustration of where you see these uh, injuries, the typical fistulas, if they're from an abdominal perineal resection, sometimes you'll see it in the bladder, so it's really high, so that's uh, difficult to fix. Uh, radical prostatectomy are obviously here at the anastomosis between the bladder neck and the urethra, uh, so these are more, more, a little more distal. And then APR, you know, when they t when they're doing the abdominal perineal resection from the from the rectal side and doing the proctectomy, uh, some of it is a little bit blind. You know, they do it by feel. Um, so you many times I've seen injuries to the membranous urethra or prosthetic urethra, even being called in intraoperatively. That they say, "Hey, look, I I see a, a I see the catheter," uh, kind of thing. So that's a, that's an issue. All right, so we'll talk about more. So what do you do? So you have a patient who has radiation. And you know, it's so hard to, to assess the bladder capacity depending on where the, the hole is. If the hole's in the bladder neck or the bladder, how do, you, how do you assess that if they're totally leaking out? How do you do a urodynamics? I mean, you know, you could plug the hole under anesthesia and try to get a bladder capacity. And usually the general anesthetic capacity is about twice the normal capacity of the bladder weight. But sometimes you just have to go by uh, secondary effects, like do you see a lot of telangiectasias, do you have radiation cystitis, grossy materia? Obviously these cases would not be good cases to select for your rectal urethral fistula repair and perhaps better to do some kind of urinary diversion. And then you want to assess, like any patient, many of these patients are not the healthiest. You know, you want to see what their physiologic reserve is. Obviously, uh, their patients will do better if they're healthy, have good muscle mass. You know, do they have sarcopenia imaging? You can look at the psoas muscle, you know, look at the ACS risk calculator, look at the frailty uh, index. And then can you do some interventions, you know, before you do a big surgery? Can you beef them up uh, with protein shakes, a G tube, TPN, appetite stimulants, physical therapy, smoking sensation? You know, smoking cessation probably one of the more important things um, because we may use muscle flap, uh, but as you know, you got to stop the smoking at least six weeks before, otherwise their secretions are even worse. So it's actually worse. <laughs> as you know, to stop them for smoking rather than to continue. So if you're not going to stop at six feet, six weeks before, may as well continue the smoking. But we'll show later that this is a very long process. You know, 
This is a three to six month process. The other thing that is most important when you sit down with your patient is this is a shared decision-making, just like we talk about it in the malignancies and prostate cancer, small renal masses. Well, what is the patient's primary goal? You know, many patients will say, look, I just don't want, I want the pain to go away. I want the rectal ulcer to go away. I'm just miserable from the pain. Or am I miserable from the incontinence? Uh, is it important for you to urinate out the penis? Would you accept uh, a, urine, a stoma? Would you accept a urinary a conduit? So all these things are very uh, uh, helpful uh, in directing the, the therapy. It has to be, this is a quality of life operation. It's not a life and death operation. So it's important to uh, share with your, with your patient what's, uh, what their goal is. What, what do they want as an outcome? And as we were saying, incontinence, pain, sepsis, I've had some patients who said, look, I don't care about the leakage. I just don't want to be Euroseptic anymore. I keep ending up in the ICU or the hospital. And I think that one of the biggest take-home messages is the last one is uh, realistic expectations. This process of fixing a rectal urethral fistula is not one surgery. It's sometimes two or three surgeries and it takes minimum six months to a year. So you have to set the, the timeline appropriately for the patient so they, they realize, one, that it's not 100% successful, and two, it's gonna take a long time, urinary diversion, I mean, a, a, a fecal diversion, the fistula repair, and then takedown of the, of the a fecal diversion three months later. So it's a long drawn out process. And so many people ask me, do I need a fecal diversion? Does everyone need a fecal diversion? So the answer is no, not everyone needs a fecal diversion if you have rectal urethral fistula. The important things are if it's an energy source like radiation, HIFU, cryo, absolutely they need a fecal diversion. If they have a lot of urinary soiling, you know, feces in the bladder, they are very symptomatic, horrible frequency, urgency, dysuria, penile pain, rectal pain, um, recurrent urosepsis. Um, these are things that they need a fecal diversion, but if they're not too symptomatic, they have a little bit of urine leak, they don't get the, uh, infections, they're not fecal soiling, they're not radiated, they're just a, a iatrogenic injury from a RALP or some a radical prostatectomy. It's not mandatory to do a fecal diversion. But most of the time, obviously, they get a fecal diversion because most of them have significant problems. How about the fecal diversion? What should we do? Should we do a colostomy or lupuleostomy? Look, lupuleostomy obviously is easier to perform. It's easier to take down. Uh, it's a quick laparoscopic procedure. The problems are that most patients are older the stool that's coming out of the lupuleostomy is uh, water. Uh, so the, many of them get dehydrated, they have problems pouching it, they bounce back to the hospital because of dehydration secondary to high uh, uh, fecal output. So many times from a quality of life, since they have to live with this uh, fecal diversion for three to six months, a colostomy is usually uh, better. The other thing is I, I, I wanted to talk about is 
that uh, going back here is that the colostomy, you want to do it in a timed fashion, usually not at the time of your rectal urethral fistula repair, but leave it a month or so between you do your diversion, wait at least a month or two to let the inflammation uh, go down, and then do your repair. How about if you have a injury secondary to a radical prostatectomy or a ralp and you, there is no radiation, no high food, no cryo, the, the PSA nadirs to, to zero. Do you have to one, do a fecal diversion? Do you have to run and say that this patient's gonna need a, a surgical repair? And about a third of the time or more, this will heal without a major reconstruction. You have a prolonged Foley catheter, wait at least, tell the patient, look, we're gonna sit on it for three months. And if at three months you still have a fistula, okay, the likelihood is it's not gonna heal, but it will get smaller. Now, is a fecal diversion 100%? No, you don't need a fecal diversion 100% of the time. Depends on how bad their symptoms are. Are they having UTIs? any fecal contamination, are they still leaking, um, uh, or the like. Um, so most of the time, most people are getting a fecal diversion, but the key is to sit on it, and it typically will heal without a major uh, reconstruction. How about, what are the approaches to a surgical repair? So here are the, the approaches. One is you can go transabdominal, whether you do that uh, with an open repair, laparoscopically or robotically. The other thing is you can cut off the sacrum. You could do a partial sacrectomy, which is a Kraski method. The third method is transphincteric, which is a York Mason repair. You can dilate the anus and go transanal, or you can make an incision here in the perineum as the different uh, of the five approaches. So we'll talk about that in, in more detail. Here's to kind of my treatment algorithm. It's, uh, this is my own personal one. Uh, you know, if the patient has no history of radiation therapy, high flu or cryo, it's a pinpoint fistula. Sometimes I'll try some fibrin glue, you don't lose too much. If it's a vis vis visible fistula, less than a centimeter, depending on how far it's from the anal verge, if it's less than six centimeters, I'll do some transanal rectal advancement flap. If it's greater than six centimeters, do some either TEMS or TAMIS uh, uh, laparoscopically. And if it's greater than a centimeter, usually use a gracilis muscle flap plus minus uh, buccal graft or York uh, Mason. And then if this uh, fails, then you can consider repeating the transanal or doing some kind of gracilis or York Mason. If it's an energy source, number one, 100% need fecal diversion. Number two, uh, usually do a gracilis muscle flap. And then the, some, some of the problems are, you know, do they have a, an associated bladder neck contracture? Are they gonna to be totally incontinent afterwards and need an artificial sphincter? And then if they fail the gracilis uh, repair, to maybe consider a supervesical diversion versus doing another muscle flap or turnbull cutte colon, colon uh, pull through. 
And then if they're a bladder cripple, if they got radiation cystitis, they're bleeding all the time, they have problems, they have a little contracted bladder, one, if it's distal to the sphincter, you can put an SP tube, or it's better just to do a fecal, uh, some kind of urinary diversion. I know it feels like a defeatment many times that we, because we want to get them to be as normal as possible, but you know, this is quality of life operation and a super vesicle diversion gives them decent quality of life. Here's just an, well, I'm sorry, here's an example of rectal urethral fistula. Uh, so uh, here's a Lone Star Retractor. This is a lighted Hill Ferguson device and uh, showing the, the mature fistula. Then uh, we're marking out the, the fistula transanally. And this is why you can't do it more than six centimeters uh, because it's just too hard to, to get up here. And then we pull the, the advance to the flap and, and, and sew it in place. And the success rate is, is fairly good, 90 or so percent, non-radiated. Here's an example of TEMS, transanal uh, endoscopic uh, microsurgery, uh, placing the port, it's a single port note in the rectum for greater than six uh, uh, centimeters. And then showing you here the, using the instruments. Now these are curved instruments. It's not so easy. I struggle. My success rate was not great doing TEMS. I was only about at the eight or nine cases I did the 50% uh, uh, success rate. And I think it was a technical uh, reason because I wasn't used to the instruments. Uh, so that's one issue. Next there's the, I think uh, TAMIS would be a, a better uh, choice. Uh, this is also in the colorectal uh, surgery literature. It's essentially uh, an applied gel port placed in the rectum and the clashing of the, of the instruments is not as, uh, as, as, as bad. And there's a lot more experience with this. Obviously doing this uh, robotically would probably be a better um, uh, option. There are a few case reports in the literature. You know, there's some YouTube videos, but there's no long-term series of using the TAMIS with a robot and docking it in place. And I think it would be very useful if you were doing it above uh, six centimeters, but uh, that's about uh, uh, it. How about a York uh, Mason approach? York Mason is a jackknife prone, as you can see and essentially making an incision, uh, parasagittal, parasacral incision. I'll show some nice cartoons. It's important to know your anal sphincter uh, anatomy uh, here. You can see uh, here on the uh, left side, the anal uh, sphincters. You have a subcutaneous, uh, superficial, and deep, which are the external anal sphincters, which are voluntary. And if you look on the right side here, you can see that here the, are the external anal sphincters, which are voluntary, internal sphincter involuntary. So this is what you're cutting and you have to reapproximate in order to recreate the anal sphincter. So you're gonna make this parasagittal incision, cut through and mark. Here you can see the internal sphincter valves. Uh, here's the external uh, sphincter. And sometimes uh, pubo rectalis here. 
And essentially, you're closing this and separating the, the tissue planes to close. Half the times, some people don't even close the uh, bladder side. I prefer to uh, cover both. But the point is, this just gives you good exposure. So you could do it transanally. You could use your TAMIS transanal. You could dock your robot and do it, or you could do it as a rectal advancement lab. There's no difference. The difference here is you're splitting the rectum and splitting the anal sphincter to just give you exposure. And here, closing the, the repair, you know, in a couple of layers, and then reapproximating your pre-placed your sutures uh, to, to, to reapproximate it afterwards. Uh, usually wait, you know, two to three months before taking down your colostomy uh, to, to if, if need be. And the issue is, do these patients have fecal incontinence? And the answer is no. You never do this in a radiated patient because radiated patients have 50% failure rate and 50% kind of fecal leakage. Uh, 90-95% success if you do it in a post-prostatectomy patient. Uh, the issue is that they do have flatulent incontinence um, afterwards. So you need to warn your patient after a York Mason repair that they have, uh, fl they can have flatulent incontinence. Next is the gracilis muscle. I was just going to go through some of the anatomy. As you know, the gracilis muscle inserts here into the inferior pubic ramus and then to the medial condyle of the tibia. And you can see uh, here on the right side how the tendon the way to not get confused about which tendon it is, is that it goes down and around and inserts uh, here and not into the back of the, the leg where the hamstrings are. Here's just another uh, nice uh, uh, image uh, showing the vascular blood supply. It's a type two muscle, which is, it has a primary pedicle and the secondary pedicles. The point is that this, this is the only thing that, it, that matters, the, the primary pedicle. And then there's a nerve uh, here innervating it. This is from the uh, obturator uh, nerve for adduction, obviously. Uh, here's just an intraoperative view, just showing you nicely. Here's the gracilis muscle. Here's the pedicle. Here's the adductus magnus going underneath here. The, here's the vasculature going underneath the adductor longus, and here's the nerve, which is a few centimeters uh, down going in that direction. Uh, this is just showing the same thing, but the important thing is tiny, the vessel. It's one artery, two veins. It's usually very long, and the nice thing about it is it's wide. It's about six centimeters wide here and about four centimeters more uh, distal. This uh, video is, it, it, you know, I'm just going to block out the, 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 the music. I'm sorry. I don't know if you can hear this, but essentially this is, I'm going to cut the music down here. The, so three finger breaths below. The easiest thing is one hand breath is the where the vessels are. Two hand breaths to the secondary pedicle and third hand breath. And this is just showing you pinching the muscle. And this is showing you how it comes in here uh, into the medial condyle. So it's coming around uh, here. All right. 
Next, here on this video, you can see here how the uh, it, the condyle, it comes around and that's the what's the key. It's not going underneath. So it's, it's, it's not so, it's easy to find and not to get confused with it. Here's uh, pulling it uh, and then we confirm, as you can see, look, it's nicely tented and, you, and it's connected to the, and then we disconnect it with electric artery usually, and then bluntly dissect it out from above and below with uh, sponge sticks and then pull it through. You'd be surprised, it's easier than you think. You just have to know the anatomy. And guess what? The best part of it is lots of RVUs. It's crazy how the, the plastic surgery people are very good at CMS and petitioning them. You get, for this procedure, half hour, this is just showing you the secondary pedicle. Uh, you, you get almost, and then the, I usually always use a Doppler to get the, to show the blood supply, just to confirm. It's pretty obvious. It's usually between six and 12 centimeters and showing here there's good rotation. But the point is you get almost as much RVUs for doing gracilis muscle flap as you do a cystectomy, which is crazy. Okay, so sometimes I, usually this day and age, I don't make just the U incision, I make more of a lambda incision to, to make the exposure. And I use a Jordan, uh, I used to do in my earlier in my career, use a Lone Star, but I tell you, the, the exposure is so difficult and deep, and it's a deep hole. So I always use the Jordan Simpson uh, Bookwalter now, really pushes the rectum down. You get so much better exposure than using the Lone Star Retractor. Here's just an example of a gracilis interposition, you know, uh, sewn in. Here's another example. What happens if the fistula is big? or if you have an associated stricture of the urethra, what do you do? So what you can do is you can take your bacillus and, and patch it with a, a, a buckle graft, and then you can patch the hole. You know, this is usually bigger than a centimeter, and you can fix your, your urethra if necessary. So here's taking the buckle graft, you know, you know, you're all familiar with this, just harvesting a buckle graft, defatting it and fenestrating it on the back table. And then if you can see here, here's our nice gracilis muscle. Then we've quilted our, our buckle graft to the, to the muscle and we can patch the hole, even a big hole. Look at this, this is like three by two centimeter hole. Uh, uh, I used to, early in my career, I would, I would take the buckle graft and sew it to the hole first and then put the, uh, the muscle to it. But there was poor um, uh, inoscillation and, and imbibition uh, uh, because I couldn't uh, oppose the muscle and the graft well. And then there would be some graft necrosis and then failure of our surgery. So I always just quilt it to the muscle first. So I know that it's gonna get excellent uh, blood supply and then sew it into effect. And it's not so easy sewing it in that uh, deep hole. Uh, you really need a headlamp. Uh, and as you can see, the Jordan Bookwalter really helps. It's really uh, essential because exposure is what's the most important thing here. Here's another example of a gracilis uh, uh, muscle. This uh, muscle's a little short, but it doesn't matter, it will reach. Here you can see the hole 
in the, in the urethra and prostatic urethra, you can see the catheter is exposed. And then we're using this long uh, buccal graft and going to quilt it and sew it in. But we quilted it first to the muscle and then sew it in. Here's another example of a abdominal perineal section, APR. We have a bear claw uh, retractor. This is a nice uh, perineal retractor that the colorectal uses when they do uh, an abdominal perineal resection. Here you can see the hole, you can see the catheter exposed. Here we've quilted a buccal graft to the muscle and then we sew this end first and then do interrupted uh, sutures to, to patch the hole. And here it is, we're completely covering and there's a, a big uh, defect as you can see. Here you can uh, mobilize the gracilis muscle uh, prone, you know, especially when you're doing uh, a patient who've had, who's had a previous abdominal perineal resection. Uh, so because the patient's uh, pr uh, prone anyway to get uh, 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 exposure here, but the issue is sometimes it's confusing in the prone position. So if you're doing this, you know, to start out, I suggest you start in lithotomy position, harvest your gracilis muscle, put it back in the leg, uh, staple the skin close, and then roll the uh, patient uh, prone and then do it. Trying to harvest it prone is a little confusing. Here's another example of, of uh, perineal uh, prostatic uh, fistula after abdominal perineal resection. Uh, some of the keys are when you know when when you do the surgery, always good to get a guide wire across and to get or or fully balloon when you start your fistula repair. Here's an example again of the Foley catheter and the prostatic uh, fistula and uh, parachuting a buccal graft down. This is obviously earlier in my career because we would sew this and quilt it to a buccal graft, uh, to a gracilis muscle rather than trying to patch the, buccal, the gracilis muscle to the buccal graft afterwards because you don't get good apposition and you don't get good anoscillation and then uh, you don't uh, get good graft take here. Many times I'll put some fibrin sealant uh, in as well, it doesn't hurt. But the key is that if after your surgery, you still see a leak, let's say at three, four weeks, should you panic? No, you reassure the patient, we're gonna sit on it, we're gonna leave the catheters in place, we're gonna leave the, the colostomy, and if at three months, okay, fine, uh, we'll, we'll redo the, the surgery. It's funny that I've had two patients over the years where I had them uh, scheduled at four months after their rectourethral fistula repair, and it failed, and they leaked. And I brought, and I was, I had them scheduled for surgery four months later, and they, and at the time of surgery, we squirted some dye in and looked, and it had healed. So, so. It's important to wait and not throw in the towel. All right, just to review a little bit about muscles, since we're talking about uh, uh, gluteal muscle in a second, you know, uh, Mathis and Nehi uh, did a very nice uh, description based on the blood supply. And here are the type one through five muscles. Type one muscle uh, classically is the gastrocnemius because it has one primary pedicle. Uh, gracilis muscle has a primary pedicle and, two, and secondary pedicles. 
the classic description of a type three muscle is something that has two blood, uh, primary blood supplies, rectus abdominis, gluteus maximus is another example. The type four muscle, as you know, when we do penile cancer, the sartorius muscle, but as you can see, the blood supply is a segmental blood supply. It cannot be rotated. This has to be flipped over like a, like a book, like you're opening a book. So you mobilize it on this side and flip it over. You don't rotate. Uh, this is not a rotational flap. You compromise the blood supply if you try and do that for a penile cancer case. And then a type five muscle is a combination of, you got one primary pedicle, the classic is the latissimus dorsi, and then you have the segmental uh, blood supply. So segmental makes it difficult to do a uh, rotational uh, uh, flap, as you can see with the sartorius muscle. So here's the gluteus maximus uh, flap. This is a uh, you know type four muscle. It's got two primary pedicles. It's got an inferior and superior gluteal ar uh, arteries. And what you can do is you can take it off the greater, greater trochanter, split the muscle here, and then you, if the fistula is high, you can, you can have your orthopedic oncology colleagues uh, help you and you can do a partial sacrectomy, distal to the S3, so you don't cause uh, sexual uh, dysfunction, repair your fistula, mobilize your your muscle, uh, you split it in half, usually take either the superior or inferior uh, gluteal artery and rotate this. And this is for a high fistula. So this is a Kraski method, you know, going transsacral. Uh, trans Here's your uh, sacrectomy and using the muscle flap to interposition. This is clearly for a bad radiated fistula after uh, um, high in the in the in the bladder here's another example hey if someone could uh, mute their uh, their uh, mic please now how about robotic repair can you go transabdominally can you place your ports like a transabdominal uh, surgery and yes uh, but there are only a few case reports. You'd be surprised that uh, there are not a lot of reports out in the literature. There are a couple of YouTube videos. And going trans, uh, separating the planes out, just like you would do for a radical prostatectomy. Some of the problems are, um, of those case reports, they have a lot of trouble sewing the fistula repair. So they're going transvesical uh, uh, here. So they're opening up the bladder robotically, closing the hole in the fistula and interposing uh, some momentum in between. I have not done these surgeries. The ones that are you see in the literature are done uh, for non-radiated uh, purposes. I guess you could harvest the gracilis muscle and, and put it, uh, pull it uh, uh, through, uh, but... Uh, uh, there are very few reports in the literature. It, technically, it's uh, feasible. I think it's, you know, for those of you who are younger, who are more robotically inclined, I'm not a robot surgeon, so I'm more comfortable with perineal surgery. I, I can operate in a deep hole, but it's not easy. I, I admit that maybe this is, would be an easier platform for those of you who don't have experience with uh, a lot of perineal surgery.
what do you do if your your fistula repairs or fail? And everything you do, you do your gracilis muscle flap, it fails, or the hole is gigantic. Uh, is there a way that you can uh, salvage uh, this? So the biggest series is from the Cleveland Clinic, uh, Turnbull Cute Colon will pull through. And essentially, it's just an old time surgery. In other words, instead of doing a stapled anastomosis uh, here, uh, uh, you resect the rectum and the, and the ulcer. And then you mobilize the entire colon all the way up to the splenic flexure and then pull this through and then leave it hanging out of the body about six centimeters and pre-place your sutures. And then you come uh, five to seven days later, transect the rectum. So the idea is that there's not an overlapping suture line. The rectum is hanging out of the body. So in their series, you know, they had a 75% success rate, which sounds not great, but these were salvage procedures. They had failed the other fistula repairs. So considering that, it's not that bad. And then about 16% developed some six, uh, uh, anal uh, strictures that needed to be dilated periodically, and some developed some rectal uh, prolapse uh, uh, kind of thing. This is just a picture interoperatively of a patient with the Turnbull Kutai. In other words, we've, we've marked uh, we pre-placed sutures in the anal, um, external anal sphincter uh, uh, so we can place the sutures uh, through at the time of surgery. And then uh, we've left this out. And then if this end of the uh, has poor blood supply, it's not gonna have poor blood supply at the level of the fistula repair. So here, you uh, even if this part dies distally, uh, doesn't matter. So then we transect it uh, fairly uh, distally, even if the anus is fairly patchless, that's okay. These are just kind of devil's uh, argu uh, argument uh, kind of papers that I uh, published uh, a few years ago. This is from 2016 and this is uh, from 2015, just showing you that of our 27 patients, the ones who were radiated had significant incontinence afterwards. 45% had incontinence, so needed either to have an artificial sphincter or some kind of other procedure. Also, they developed, they had some kind of concomitant bladder neck contraction or developed a secondary bladder neck contraction that was highly statistically significant, the ones that are radiated. And then we looked at overall our urinary diversion, uh, our patients with fistulas, and you can see here 86, 44 with radiation. But in the end, a lot of them were not healthy, uh, uh, had a lot of comorbidities, and in the end, many of them ended up with a urinary diversion or a fistula uh, failure. At least this was in earlier in my uh, career, and many of them were incontinent. So the argument is, Maybe these patients who are radiated have large fistulas, who have poor performance status, who have significant comorbidities. Maybe it's just better to do a urinary diversion because this is a quality of life uh, surgery, obviously. What do you do if you have a fistula that everything fails? You're, or the patient has a con concurrent uh, malignancy. 
This is a nice paper I published, uh, wow, a long time ago, 14 years ago. Well, the point is that the 29 patients, most of them had poor ECOG performance status. Most of them were vesicle vaginal fistulas, some recto, vaginal, uh, recto prostatic fistulas. But the point is what we did is we embolized the ureters, 100% uh, success. Um, but the point is that these patients had a very short overall survival of eight months and only uh, three made it to some kind of stage repair where we did a colovesicle or coloconduits or, or ileal conduit diversion. And here's just illustrations. So you put an nephrostomy tube in, then you coil the distal urethra, and there's a usually delay of about three days between uh, placing the coils and uh, stopping the urine because it causes an, infl uh, an inflammatory state. And then you can obstruct the, the urine. Here's another example of coiling the ureters, you know, obviously distal to the iliac. So there's still enough ureter that if the patient survived and made it to, to a, a, a point where they survived their malignancy or their crush injury, you could still do some kind of urinary diversion. You could do a studer, which I've done before. Uh, in, in one case, uh, a studer, a neobladder, or uh, some kind of ileal conduit or transverse coloconduit. So to review, well, who's a good candidate for this uh, embolization procedure of the, of the distal ureters, patients with poor performance status, limited life expectancy, and it's a, it can be done as a stage procedure if they survive their procedure. So what are our take home message? You know, this is shared decision-making because this is a quality of life uh, surgery. So set uh, realistic expectations for the patient of what they want. Many of them just, they just don't want to leak anymore. Some of them want the urosepsis to go away. Some of them just want the pelvic pain. The pelvic pain secondary to the rectal ulcer uh, makes them very desperate. Uh, uh, so you have to um, see what they want in terms of the end decision. So if they just want the pain to go away or the diversion, the urine to, to stop leaking, you can just do a urinary and fecal diversion. Those are not, that's a long-term solution uh, kind of thing. The next thing is realistic expectations, meaning that it's gonna take six months to a year to fix this. And it's not so easy. You may have to use the whole armamentarium gracilis muscle, gluteal muscle, buccal graft. And then in the end, maybe supervesical diversion for patients with large fistulas with uh, some kind of energy source like HIFU or radiation therapy is a reasonable option. And I think that's our, the end of our talk. You know, I, I, I put the Excelsior, uh, our, our state model in New York, uh, because it's onward and upward. Uh, so with this coronavirus uh, business, uh, we're going onward and upward. And I thought I'd, I'd put a, a, a couple of a little humorous uh, coronavirus things to, uh, to uh, make some light of the thing. So here, 
You know, those of you who uh, uh, are trying to wear your N95 mask and you have a beard, obviously you have to shave, but here are the, the approved, uh, 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 you can have a soul patch, whiskers, you can even have a pencil, uh, a Zorro, the Frank Zappa, so that's one thing. Next, look at, look how crazy people are going with the PPE. At least they have, they have a sense of humor. Uh, people wearing uh, 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 water bottles on their head, bras. You heard the our own faculty member has a diaper mask. And then in the end, some people like the classical look. You know, they like the plague look. Uh, and you can see this is Schnooks. This is from St. Louis, a friend of mine sent this to me uh, from St. Louis. He saw this person in the supermarket. So there are lots of crazies out there. And lastly, I know this is a little uh, inappropriate, but you know, it's good to have a job uh, because look at this, $450 million a month. So uh, good to be essential, but you know, good to have a job as well. All right, thank you very much. And uh, I appreciate- uh, uh, Thank you. Yeah, if anyone yes. has any questions, I'd like, yes. Thank you, Steve. That was an excellent, excellent talk. Um, I want to invite our audience to submit any questions through the Zoom group chat function, and I will present those questions to Dr. Brandis should you have them. While we're waiting for the questions to come up, um, I want to make everyone aware that we're going to be sending a survey out um, based on your experience with the talk. So I encourage you to check your emails for that survey. We'll also be sending out uh, in-service board style questions based on the topic of the talk to anyone that signed in, just about two to five questions to reinforce the topics um, within the talk and within the core curriculum. So far, Dr. Brandis, we're just getting a lot of comments on how excellent your talk was and what it was. I have one question from Dr. Grotus. Have you used transanal techniques for vesicovaginal fistulas? Uh, I have not, uh, well, I've done with the colorectal people rectal vaginal fistulas that have failed uh, multiple uh, uh, previous repairs and I've helped them, I've mobilized the gracilis muscle for a rectal vaginal uh, 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 fistula, uh, particularly if the patient has been previously radiated or had some kind of energy source. Um, in terms of trans uh, vesicle vaginal fistula, uh, usually uh, uh, clearly, if non-radiated, we'll go just uh, uh, transvaginal to repair it as an advancement flap. Usually, you can find um, an epiploica of the bowel that you can interpose. Sometimes, you can find omentum. As long as it's not involving the ureter orifices, you can repair the fistula transvaginally. If it's close to the ureter orifices, then you may have to re-implant the ureters, or, or if it's radiated, you may want to go from above, you know, and split the, the bladder in half and re-implant the ureters and, and the like. So uh, I think uh, transperineal, transanal, do that uh, for a rectal vaginal fistula and use gracilis if it's radiated, or Marteus flap if uh, 
uh, for vesicle vaginal fistula if it's radiated. You got to interpose something, either gracilis muscle, martius, uh, paravaginal flap, something. Okay, um, another question. Would you go for simple urostomies um, rather than a conduit in more complicated patients? Yeah, no, I agree. You know, that's a uh, cutaneous ureterostomy is not a bad idea. You can do that laparoscopically and just bring it to the skin and, uh, and bring the two ureters uh, to, to, together. There was a nice uh, paper a few years ago in the Journal of Urology. Uh, by the University of South uh, Florida group, where they did like 200 something cases of cutaneous ureterostomies, but their stricture rate was a little high. So you may have to leave a, a cutane, uh, ureteral stent in, but that's an easy procedure that you could do laparoscopically and pop the, the ureters through the skin and they don't have a bowel anastomosis. So I think that's an excellent uh, choice for a poor performance status uh, patient. And you'll see that in Europe, that's much more, they don't put uh, bilateral nephrostomies for end-stage malignancy patients. They'll, they'll do a cutaneous ureterostomy much more often. Uh, so I think that's an excellent idea. What is your preferred suture material for repairing fistulas? Uh, usually PDS, uh, I think uh, it's a little longer, it's easier to tie. Uh, um, I don't think Vicro is, 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 is typically not, not a bad suture, but I prefer uh, to use PDS or Maxon uh, um, because of its uh, ease of tying and it, it just lasts a little longer, three months. All right, I think that's it for questions. Um, let me just flip through. In radiated patients, aside from fecal diversions, any recommendations on rectoprosthetic repair approach? Yeah, so the, the important things is I would do the fecal diversion, you know, at least a month or at least six weeks before you attempt your repair for a radiation uh, fistula. Uh, for two reasons. One, there's a lot of stool that is distal to your diversion and, and, and they'll still move their bowels and have fecal, fecal contamination distally. Um, so you want to wait for this, the inflammation to go down so you maximize your chances of success. Then you come, you know, six weeks later. Um, some of the other reason I should say is that there are some patients who have a very long and delayed um, 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 uh, uh, delayed um, um, uh, they have a delayed ileus after doing a colostomy or ileostomy. Sometimes they spend a, a week or two in the hospital, so that's a big problem. The, the last thing is that any kind of energy source, whether it's HIFU, whether it's cryo, whether it's radiation, all of them demand an interposition of muscle. So whether you put the gracilis muscle, you, uh, you use, uh, some people I've seen use bobospongiosis muscle, or you uh, use the gluteal muscle, 
but that's the key that you you that you interpose healthy muscle into the tissue between uh, a radiated uh, uh, fistula re repair and then if the fistula repair um, the hole is large you know greater than a centimeter or two you cannot pull the edges together otherwise they'll be on tension and then it will fall apart so the best thing to do is to quilt the the buckle graft first to the gracilis muscle or gluteal muscle, whatever muscle flap you're using, and then sew that in as one unit to patch the, the hole. Okay, great. I want to thank you, Steve, again. The overwhelm oh, one more, sorry, one more question. Is <laughs> That's the fine. We got time. We got three is minutes. Is the omentum enough as a layer of coverage? when you're using it for interposition? I think it's enough. Uh, usually if it's a non-radiated uh, fistula, uh, my experience has not been that great of just doing omentum uh, uh, as the interposition if it's a radiated or energy source. So let's say you're doing it robotically or laparoscopically and you separate the planes. Doing omentum, doing omentum I think is I think fine, fine for, for non-radiated. Okay. Well, yeah. All right. Well, thanks again. The overwhelming commentary is that this was an excellent review. Um, I want to thank all of our participants and again to encourage you to tune in tomorrow according to the schedule. This project was a labor of love um, put together by Alex Small, who's a fellow at Sinai, um, and two of our residents, Michael Smigelski and Miad Movasaji. It goes to show that if you're a resident and you have an idea, you can make it happen. We want to thank the New York section for um, allowing us to la launch this series, and especially Michelle Paoli for helping us get the resources together to coordinate this. We hope to have a website up and running midweek, which will have all of these um, lectures archived um, and be a better interface.